Hello, welcome back to Reckoning Higher Ed, a podcast dedicated to investigating the issues facing higher ed today. My name is Jeff DiGiovanni, and I am the host. Before we get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we're doing. And how are we doing? Well, to date, we have released three episodes and have pushed out some um, news about that through various social media venues such as LinkedIn and Facebook, etc. Um, and I have to say I am quite astounded by the support and excitement around it and the feedback I've gotten so far. So thank you for all of you who have participated and given it a shot. Uh, I encourage everyone who is listening to subscribe uh, to, this, to the podcast. And of course, you can listen to it wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or at www.reckoninghighered.com. And of course, you can email me and drop a line at jeff at reckoninghighered.com. So again, very excited about the response and uh, we want to continue doing this and uh, note that we will be releasing episodes on the 1st and the 15th of each month. So it's two episodes per month at the beginning and the middle of each month. So moving on to today's episode, when you read news about universities and the issues and the changes that are upcoming, typically it seems that these articles fall into one of two categories. One, it's about money and how the budget crunch of these universities are facing and the layoffs and on and on and on. Or two, enrollment and how enrollment is dropping. There's fewer people. There's, you know, COVID's not helping. Whatever it is, there's just fewer people to fill the seats. It's no surprise that these two elements are often linked. Enrollment is very tightly linked to the funding of a university, even in the highest research activity universities, the vast majority of the revenue comes through tuition. And I'm talking 80, 85 to 90%. So naturally enrollment and the budget are very, very closely tied. However, that really gives a misperception of what universities do. They're not just training people to do certain things. It's not just a matter of delivering degrees, as it were. There's a lot more to it. And one of the areas in which they, that, the, that you'd get a skewed perspective is some of the values that institutions bring beyond that, and one of which is research. Universities are a massive source of human knowledge through the research that comes through universities, both funded and some unfunded. And of course, they're both categories. And at some point, and a future episode, we'll talk about the research enterprise specifically and how that manifests at the university, uh, the expectation for grants and performance. And of course, that is linked to a, something we talked in a previous episode, which was tenure. For today, we wanted to look more into research and the identity of the university. And some of the role, this is a thematic topic that we talk about, is the role of the university in society. Many universities adopt what's called the mentor-learner model, which is that which is demonstrated by the faculty and the, the seasoned researchers is then developed in the students, typically you would think doctoral students, PhD students most specifically. 
So I'd like to introduce my guest today, Jim Montgomery, who has spent his career in the academic setting performing research. Pretty much has the whole host of degrees, earning his bachelor's degree in 1979 in experimental psychology. He earned his master's degree in 1982 from Indiana University, and he earned a clinical degree in speech language pathology. And then he earned his PhD in 1988 from Wichita State University. He went on to further develop his research prowess by performing a postdoc at Purdue University for two to three years in developmental psycholinguistics. So from there, he formally entered the academic setting as an assistant professor in speech and hearing sciences at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He earned tenure in 1997 and became an associate professor at the same university. In 2003, he moved to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, where he was a professor, or like we often say, full professor at Ohio University and was also the director of the Developmental and Psycholinguistics Lab. He also dabbled a little bit in administration and he ran the communication science and disorders area at Ohio University uh, for about three years. As such, his identity generally remains in the research world. So I bring you Jim Montgomery today to talk about research and its role at the university and bring you some of his wisdom and seasoned thoughts on the matter. Jim, I really appreciate you coming today. Thank you and welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. <clears throat> so first thing I wanted to ask, so I know I gave you a bit of an intro there, but um, maybe give me a little more depth on how you got into higher ed and research, what really drives your interests, what questions you're trying to answer. And, you know, I think implicit in that is, you know, just give me some of the highlights, the touchstones uh, throughout your career, what, what has really helped move you along. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, uh, thanks for the invite. I'm uh, delighted to, to be with you again. You and I go back a long way. This is better than not connecting at all. So uh, thanks for the invite. I'm happy to do this. Um. <laughs> Very, very early on, I give you a, my backstory is this. <clears throat> when, when I was a little kid, um, I grew up in a neighborhood where the house down the street from me, <clears throat> uh, the family had 10 kids. And I hung out with uh, two of the boys who were about my age, and they had a younger sister. I don't know, maybe five, six young, uh, years younger than we are. And she was profoundly deaf. And this is back in the, I'm dating myself, but back in the mid-60s. And <clears throat> she, she had no verbal communication. She did not sign these. And her parents had the wherewithal to know that this kid needed uh, habilitation. And so they sent her to Gallaudet full time for years. And she would come home, uh, during the summers. And I would, I would see year after year that this kid went from zero language, zero verbal production to, being a total communicator and having verbal language. And I used to peer through the, you know, my periphery <clears throat> as I was playing with the boys, um, watching, watching her uh, 
interact with her oral rehabilitationist or speech language pathologist. I, I, I don't know which it was at that time, but I was fascinated by how this kid could go from zero to a total communicator. And, and, and her therapist realized that I had some interest and she would invite me into her little intervention sessions. So I became a, a little therapist, you know, at, at age six, seven, eight or nine, whatever I was. Um, and it, and that, that experience, that, that, those observations sparked something in me about <clears throat> my fascination with this relationship between language and cognition and the environment input. And um, that, that was my, my spark. So I, so as an undergrad, I went to a small liberal arts undergrad program, um, studying experimental psychology. I was a lab rat. Um, didn't, the, the university did not have a, a CSD program. I knew I wanted to study cognition and language. I went to, to um, Indiana University for my master's, was out for a while, uh, four or five years studying, and um, still fascinated with this cognition language connection, and realized that I needed to go back for my PhD. So I went up to Kansas to study cognition and language, after receiving my PhD, I went to, and actually this is probably the most important decision I ever made. Um, I did a two and a half year postdoc at uh, Purdue, um, working with a giant in the area of developmental language impairment and speech perception. And so that experience really, really shaped how I, how I came to think about cognition and language and input factors. Um, after my postdoc, I, I, as you mentioned, joined uh, UNC Chapel Hill as a faculty member, and um, I had a bifurcated position. And I wouldn't I wouldn't advise this for anybody, but uh, I had a bifurcated uh, job position where I was um, um, had a primary clinical appointment, and then I had a, a an academic appointment in speech and hearing sciences. So, <clears throat> so my my first really 14, 15 years as an academic was a was a hybrid. I I, I did a combination of clinical work but also academic work. And it was at UNC where I <clears throat> began my, my academic career in, in the area of uh, sentence comprehension and better understanding the cognitive underpinnings of sentence comprehension in kids, school-age <clears throat> school kids with, with developmental language impairment. So it was really there that I began my chops to understand how to, how to do science and um, have submitted and uh, been very, very fortunate to, to receive NIH funding to support my research career. And um, yeah, in 2003, I came to, to Ohio University <clears throat> Uh, joined the faculty, essentially doing everything I was doing at, at uh, UNC, minus minus the uh, the clinical uh, component. 
Um, and as you said, over the last three years, I've been associate director of communication sciences and disorders, and it's 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 been a uh, an eye opening experience, put it that way, in terms of how <clears throat> looking at the the, the four forces. I imagine so. And so, um, one thing I've always appreciated about Ohio University is uh, for uh, an R two, which is the the, the Carnegie classification of, of high research activity really had what was would be classically understood as an R1 level expectations, at least in the department at the time, it was a school of hearing, speech, and language sciences, later it became communication sciences and disorder. In that, there was a reasonable teaching load for research faculty member, and um, and they had very good lab space and, and allowed research faculty like yourself to really flourish because you had NIH funding at UNC, but then the, the really big grants came in while you were at OU, the R01, the, the multi-million dollar grants, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. So tell me a little bit about that process. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. <clears throat> I'm a little bit different than some of my colleagues, um, my, my uh, colleagues at other universities. Um, I, I've always taken my time to develop grant applications, and I spend maybe too much time. I, I'm not sure, but it's it's always worked out. But I spend an enormous amount of time on the front end, really understanding the next step of my research program, and setting up as tight a conceptual framework for the next uh, grant project. <clears throat> And in addition, setting up uh, new, you know, creating new methods and, and collecting pilot data in support of those methods. Whereas some of my colleagues will, will um, crank out a lot of different grants at the same time, and they're very successful. Um, I, I, I've taken a bit of a different road in terms of submitting fewer grants, but feeling really good about about the product. So while I've been here, <clears throat> yeah, my focus has been on over the last oh, 10 years, really, really doing a deep dive in the cognitive linguistic underpinnings of sentence comprehension and, and these kids with uh, language impairment. And the reason I study that area is because auditory sentence comprehension is one of the the hallmark deficits of these kids. Yet, and I'm not sure why, <clears throat> it, it, it's a very under-researched area. And I feel that, that, at least from a theoretical point of view, it's really under, uh, very, very important to understand what is underlying these kids' sentence comprehension deficits. On the clinical side, the, 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 the clinical implications are enormous because kids with, with language impairment and especially sentence comprehension deficits, these are the kids who end up being the most severely reading impaired kids in school. Uh, auditory sentence comprehension is the single strongest predictor of reading comprehension. Reading comprehension is the single strongest predictor of academic achievement. And then, of course, academic achievement is uh, is a predictor of vocational status and, and employment, you know, status. So, 
that's what I've been working on before I became a, an administrator type person. I was able to, to, to do the work um, pretty well. You know the program very well. We built our program over the years to highlight, I guess, and to emphasize tenure track faculties, you know, just giving them the, the, the time and the resources to, to do their uh, research, to develop their research program, execute them, try to write research grants. But over time, of course, and this isn't just happening at, at, at uh, Ohio University, but a lot of universities are, are finding, uh, you know, finding themselves uh, managing the confluence of a lot of external factors, and that, and that, and that's been the trouble. That's but that's what I've been trying to work very hard as director of our program is to manage those in such a way that the tenure track faculty still have sufficient time to do their research programs. Absolutely. So tell me, you just mentioned about being associate director and, and really taking a keen interest in protecting people's time so they can flourish as researchers. Yeah. Now, um, I'm not sure how uh, various listeners are going to be in different places to how they understand the priorities of administration versus faculty and, and all the pressures and tensions on those. So, so tell me about how you were able to do that and what the pressures were against you and how you worked around those to, to, to help faculty flourish and protect their time so they could really be good researchers and productive. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a multi-dimensional mindset, I think. The first thing I did was, as I entered administration, was to take a look at kind of what our infrastructure was within the department. And by that, I mean, uh, what was what was the structure of our teaching assignments, and what what was the structure of our of our curriculum, and what I decided to do was to cut back some of the curriculum because it 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 became to be a bit of a kudzu issue. So, for those of you who don't know what kudzu is, kudzu is an invasive, pernicious uh, weed down in the south, and it just takes over everything. I was wondering if that's what you're referring to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know a little bit about the South. A little bit. <laughs> so that was one of my first um, missions was to restructure the curriculum. And by doing that, that allowed me to build a more reliable, consistent uh, teaching assignment system such that faculty were able to know they could predict which classes they were going to teach and which semester year after year. There was no guesswork. And that, that allows faculty to allocate their time, you know, just bear down and, you know, develop their courses, refine them and build them as they, as they need to. And then just refine them over time, as we all do. The cognitive principle behind that is that 
you know, we're, as humans, we're all limited capacity processors. So, so if you're having to spend a ton of time working in the, you know, constantly figuring out what classes you're going to teach, a new class prep every single semester or year, you don't, that, that, that siphons up siphons off a lot of your cognitive resources that you could devote to your research program. So that was number one, is to, is to realign teaching according to expertise and right, also right. in terms of just consistency. And uh, the, the second, and that's just a very local uh, decision. Um, but, but the other thing is, and it may get more to your point, is that yeah, you know, being in a university community, uh, you've got leadership who, who has certain priorities, and then you might have a change in leadership every few years, and then they come in with a new set of priorities. So really what it comes down to is, yes, as an academic unit, we we have the responsibility to, to uh, um, work with upper administration and to work toward uh, fulfilling, you know, um, satisfying the, the mission and the priorities of the university. That, that's a no-brainer. That's what we do. However, oftentimes, and I'm sure you realize that uh, you, from your experiences, that there are lots of initiatives that come down the pike. Absolutely. Every year. Yes. So I, I think it really... It's, it's up to local leadership, i.e., you know, the department chair, to decide or at least bring up a conversation among the faculty. What do you think about this initiative? Does it fit our priorities? Do we want to go with it? And, and I think part of the, the decision-making that I think is really important but oftentimes gets, gets neglected is you have to, you have to make decisions using a cost-benefit analysis. You have to look at every decision from through that prism and not just bite, hook, line, and sinker on every initiative that comes down the pipe because that spells uh -huh. disaster from my point of view. I totally hear that. Um, that's really interesting and in, in um, I imagine that does a lot of benefits to the department, you know, engendering a strong sense of morale. They have a stake. There's buy-in when you do say yes to, to these initiatives or certain initiatives. Yep. Um, it, yep. How has that worked out if you sort of declined, if you will, an initiative when that may or may not have been an actual question <laughs> to, from the administration say, well, we kind of expect you to go along with it. Not, uh, we weren't really asking you to go along with it. <laughs> uh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what, what I do is, <clears throat> and, and well, you, you know my modus operandi. I, I I I will evaluate it top to bottom, side to side, and and um, and as a faculty, we we talk about it. <clears throat> and then what I do is I I write a response to the initiator, <laughs> the upstream 
upstream initiator and write a short but clear, concise evaluation from our perspective of what the initiative is mm. and what mm-hmm. we think the university is, is asking for and then framing that within the context of what our priorities are and where we are moving along that pathway of initiative of, of our priorities and that at the moment the initiative doesn't fit our priorities, that we've got good momentum on these other priorities, <laughs> university priorities. So I try to I, I try to frame it within this context of, of we we are we are executing these other university priorities, but we don't have the, um, but, but this new initiative doesn't quite fit our priorities and in, in our level of expertise. You know, if there are certain things within the um, initiative that, that we may not be great at, we, we just don't have this, the, the, you know, the right composition of faculty to pull it off. So you're talking about the soft letdown, if you will, and it's certainly reasonable and makes sense to couch that in with your strengths, right? Because a lot of, especially nowadays in, in leadership, strengths-based leaders, you want to capitalize on people or units' strengths and not so much the weaknesses. So you, you pull people in where they're strong. So have you experienced pressures in terms of teaching loads, um, you know, sort of the de-emphasizing of research or at least eating into that research time. I know uh, Governor Kasich, when he, when he was governor of Ohio, uh, wanted everyone to teach one more course per year, regardless of where you were at, just everyone plus one, wherever you are, plus one. And, you know, naturally that's um, a, fairly, a fairly thoughtless idea that, sure, it might help from a revenue perspective, but just kind of smacks of, of uh, lack of consideration of of the nuances and complexities of the university environment. Have you ex- experienced that though when you were associate director? Um, yes, there, there, there is. There's always the pressure to do more teaching, uh, and, and and that is university wide uh, to be sure. And the culture within our broader college, the expectation for m- most units is to have a you know a pretty significant teaching load you know anywhere from five to six courses a year. We on the other hand, CSD has a teaching load, a typical teaching load, a two-two teaching load. Our justification for resisting increasing teaching load is well, at least twofold. Number one is our program, as you know, has been built to be a research unit. And we, over the years, have, have I think, done a, a really good job of building our faculty and the composition of our tenure track faculty to be research oriented that's that's one of my retorts is that we are the heaviest research producing unit in the college whereas other units they've made very different decisions uh, about populating their 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 faculty they have decided to bring in more 
uh, instructional type faculty with no research expectation. So that that's that's one issue, and then that's the the second issue, which again relates to the to the structure of our program, is that, and again a, a local issue to our program is that we're we're one of few programs that has a PhD program in the university and the only program in the college with a PhD program. And as you know, as anybody knows, uh, working in a program that has PhD students, uh, PhD students, I don't care how smart they are, they're a ton of work. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And, um, And we take it seriously to mentor students in the research enterprise. A research, uh, I'm sorry, a, a PhD, for God's sakes, is a PhD in, it's a research degree. It, it's not a clinical degree. It's not a, an interdisciplinary degree. It, it, it's a degree in, you know, in which you are building your breadth and, and digging deep into your areas of interest. In most CSD programs, speech and hearing science programs, who are who are recruiting new young faculty. I mean, if you if you look across the board, you, you know uh, you see you know Big Ten schools, Arizona, Washington. Pretty much, it doesn't matter where you look. If you're going, <clears throat> if you're looking at an R one institution, they're looking for really deep knowledge faculty. They're not looking for generalists. They're looking for people who are really well trained in their in their focus area. So that's my my local uh, retort to to the college or the university that that we we need to preserve our teaching load to be able to do that. And then the third, I guess, uh, rationale is we as faculty we are. You know, we're research-oriented. You know, the more teaching we do, obviously, the less time we have to do research. And what is the most important commodity to us as researchers? What's the most important commodity? It's time. Absolutely. The tightest budget of them all. And it goes in discrete units through time, right? It's, you don't have a lump sum. Exactly, exactly. So I, I really bristle at and, and I defend aggressively this idea that teaching another course would be, you know, if it's a three-hour course, contact time, and the expectation is another six hours outside of class to do what you do, you know, prep and score exams and whatever. Those nine hours don't really translate very well to the to, to your research time. And by that, I mean that to teach a three-hour course, a teaching the three-hour course isn't that big a deal. It's all the other time that, that is wrapped around the class that is so disruptive to creating what I would call a cognitive flow for your research. You don't have the time mm. to really think, to penetrate these these issues that you're thinking about. Yeah. And for those who may not be in research, for those who aren't in the university setting, 
what Jim's getting at here is, is it's not enough to say you have 20 or 40 or 50% of your time dedicated to research. It's the quality of that time. And a lot of times that, that time is what that means for a researcher is not just, you know, an hour from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. and two hours in the afternoon and then a half an hour here. That doesn't work in research. That can work in teaching because you can jump in and out of teaching, at least in terms of prep, a lot more easily than research. If you're setting up an experiment, if you're you know programming or you're trying to write a manuscript or a grant application, you need to exactly. use so much information and it's so deep. You're really at the, at the limit of your own function, your cognitive function, that you just need that time to just to get that deep. So large blocks of time is, is one element, not just how much time. And, and then, you know, so everything get that gets scheduled around that, whether it's meetings, whether it's uh, your actual classes and how they're scheduled can really uh, make or break in some ways your success and, and progress in research. Would you agree with that, Jim? I, I, you put it better than I did. That, that, that is exactly right. It, it's about a, amount of time is important, certainly. But what's more important is the block of time, the block of uninterrupted, undisturbed time. Mm-hmm. You know, a student comes to your door. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. This will only take a second. Well, I'm sorry. You've screwed me up for the next 20 minutes. Come on in. <laughs> yeah. Um, research tells you, tells us that if you're if you're in a cognitive flow, you're, you know, you're in a good space. You're really, you know, you, you, you've, you've got a hook in what you're thinking about. If you're interrupted, it takes no fewer than 15 minutes to get back to that level of flow. Wow. That's, that's, wow, that's, that's astounding. I feel in some ways I might be low functioning because I always said it was taking a half an hour to an hour to get back to that cognitive flow. I want, uh, no comment. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so it's interesting you talk about PhD and PhD students because you said, yeah, PhD students do take a lot of time. And, and from a university perspective, they're also very expensive because, um, most PhD programs, at least any PhD worth getting, isn't is one you don't pay for yourself, right? <laughs> you get you're usually funded uh, off a off a grant or university funds. Um, so discuss that in in the contribution because they are they are a very a big investment, but that, which is why you know I think it leads to that whole legacy mindset of hey, this is my academic child when you've graduated a PhD and they they're, you're their academic father. I mean that, that that legacy is a real thing. Yes. Um, so so talk about that that sort of tension, what they serve, and how sometimes administration doesn't really appreciate that when they're looking at hard numbers that that sort of thing. Um. Yeah, that, that, that is a big, big issue. And I'm not sure what the, what the resolution is, to tell you the truth, other than your, the, the other components of your program, your undergraduate and professional programs, being the cash cows, essentially, being able to, to bring in those revenues 
to offset the, the stipends and tuition waivers that we give our doc students. That's where where I see uh, you know where where I see the forces coming down at least in our division our department and I'm sure that that's also true of of other programs. <clears throat> so the way I, I I try to work out the budget is um, like other programs around the country we we are working aggressively to increase our enrollments at least in our undergraduate ranks. Now you you can't really expand too too much if you're doing a you know a live you know face to face MA program or AUD program you know there are certain ceilings you you can't go beyond for for effective training so so it's really um, building growing the undergraduate program <clears throat> to help feed the revenues for your program depending on the university's budget model. But even if you're, the money doesn't come back to you directly, the, the fact that you're being a good citizen to the university, I, I think, buys you some leverage to argue with the university, argue with the university, that um, the, the resources that we are spending on, on our doc students is well worth it. The ROI, return on investment, <clears throat> I think is is strong and and a lot of what you do as director is to convince upper administration that it's in the best interest of the university and the program to fund really good doc students and why is it in their best interest number one doc students can be a tremendous help in facilitating a faculty member's research program. Mm -hmm. there, there, there's just no doubt about it. Yeah, you, you bring them in, you train them up. Uh, they, you, you know, you're kind of in simpatico. You, you know them, they know you. It's hand in glove and, and they can almost, you know, complete your thoughts. You, 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 you develop this really deep, important uh, relationship um, you know, friendship, sure, but 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 this professional and, and intellectual relationship, mm -hmm. absolutely, that is helpful to you and to them, and they can help push your your research program forward. And by that I mean, they can help you publish. They can help you uh, th through data collection, data analysis, and even some writing. Um, they can help you think through. The issues that you're thinking through for a new project or a new grant, they can help you with pilot data, collection. It, it, it's hugely important. Doc students, if they're not being abused <laughs> um, and you have a good relationship with them, it's a win-win it's a situation. And it makes the faculty member more productive and more likely to be able to, to crank out competitive external grant proposals. That is... And so that that's the faculty benefit to the university, because if you, you know, what does the university want? They, you know, they they want the greenback, man. They want the dollars. They want they they want you to underwrite your salary. They want you to underwrite students, uh, which is all good. That's why we do it. But it also is highly prestigious to the university. 
you're not going to become, you're not going to go from R, R2 university to R1 university if, you, if faculty aren't, aren't um, successful in the, in the grantsmanship game. That's number one. And, and, and then the, the second re- return is in terms of university prestige with respect to students. You know, if you have students who graduate from your, your, your PhD program and they're going to some really nice, strong programs around the country, that's a feather in the cap of the university. Say, hey, look, come. You know, come to, to Ohio University, come to University of Cincinnati, come to, you know, Indiana University. Uh, you know, I think what it comes down to is, I, I think this is the essence of the issue. We as academics are playing the long game. Upper administration is playing the short game. And you have to do your level best. You have to convince the upper administration to play the long game. And that's not easy. That is a really profound statement. It's not easy. Uh, and the administration's up against a wall. And I've heard it described as a vice in some ways, where you have states mandating your tuitions to be frozen. They reduce the state subsidy, putting you in a, in a fiscal vice. True. And things like PhDs, which are a long game, it is a true investment. It's like saying, well, your mortgage is going up and your salary is going down. So what are you going to do? Well, maybe I'll stop putting into retirement so I can cover my bills. Well, your retirement is how you're going to live in the future. Your retirement is your PhD yeah. students, right? That's your future. Yeah. Um, and so no advisor would say, yeah, don't put into retirement. You know, don't stop your retirement, you know, or they wouldn't tell you to stop, you know, investing in, in your retirement. And the same as with the PhDs, they are the future of the university. Yeah. Um, yeah. And with that, I mean, you're right. I mean, I think that's it is such a profound thought. The long game versus the short game. And there's a lot of variables when you look up to that space that is the the space of the higher administration and how they fight that fight. And and yet they they could see these these yes. chips, if you will, that are in the short game, easy to take off the table at their own demise in the long game. And it's even harder harder to convince when it's almost a political situation right where it's like a president one president's in and you have a bunch of policies this way you have another president and everything just gets turned upside down and and when you know you're only in for a few years you're not necessarily incentivized to think about the long game because you're trying to build a legacy you're trying to you know put uh survive the current whims and realities you know or whatever is happening whichever way the wind's blowing that day which is no trivial matter because uh, things can change very rapidly so uh, I don't know if you have ideas on how to or or what it would take for administration to think of that long game or what their decisions would look, how they would look different in making decisions in higher ed and, and with all these pressures, taking that long game approach rather than a short game approach. What would they cut if it weren't PhD funding, for example, or graduate student funding? Um, that, that, that's a good question. And I, and I think your analogy about retirement and it's, it's, is apt. It, it's a good one. And, uh, very, very near and dear and close to my heart right now. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> or, or to reflect back to you, no yeah. comment. Um, but to address the question is, uh, 
I think what it comes down to is universities have to do some tough decision making. And that entails doing a top to bottom uh, inventory of programs that are doing well, defined, and there are different definitions of well, um, but we also know that there are programs that are expensive, have quite a few faculty, and very, very low enrollment, and may not be programs that are, you know, attracting uh, um, a, a lot of students. And so, uh, so I think I think universities are, are going to have to be f- are, are faced now with having to make tough decisions about which very very marginal programs marginal with respect to revenue marginal with respect to student numbers marginal with respect to whether or not that program is duplicated and reduplicated at other universities upper administration has to take a hard look at which programs should survive and which programs may not survive And that is all driven by the bigger issue. What do you want your university to be? What do you want it to be? You can't be everything to everyone. What are your priorities? What are your true priorities and mission? What is it you want to be? You know, putting in, in, you know, corporate terms, what, what is your brand? And stick with it for a while. Don't, 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 don't create a new brand and then three years later say, oh, well, we don't like that. We're going to do a new brand. Well, that makes absolutely no sense. And it, and it creates, again, to use corporate language, which I think is a huge problem in academics, <laughs> that creates market confusion. Right, right. Uh, it really starts at the, at the top, leadership. They have to define what the hell we want to be. Who do we want to be? Who do we want to attract? And then pour the resources into those programs that are doing a great job at that. And then figure out what you want to do with the really, really marginal programs. But I don't think upper administration wants to talk about, you know, getting real. You know, there's a really good example of that that happened at OU, I believe, is when... um... Now, the Department of Social Work, when they were moved into the College of Health Sciences and Professions, uh, from they, they were doing great work. Uh, they have solid faculty, but they were upside down financially. I mean, they, they were hemorrhaging money because they had a fairly small uh, in-person program, if I recall. And what they did is they increased the size of the program modestly so they could still support it, but then started an online, uh, if I recall, I think it was the MSW, maybe the Master's um, yeah. in Social Work. Yeah. And, and, and suddenly they really flourished and were able to, from their, you know, unit's perspective, become whole. And, and that's the kind of, you know, I don't know what creativity is the right word, but, but right sizing or adjustments that can really protect a lot of units. So, what, you know, what's not viable is when you have a unit that 
is uh, of in them themselves uh, a certain profession. I'm not thinking like humanities because they're they need to serve the undergraduate and the, the liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that there there has to be some sort of calculus that goes alongside that and account for the support they're giving other programs. But for you know a certain profession, like I know uh, athletic training is a, is a is one that's struggling right now because they decided as a profession to have a master's to be their entry level degree to practice. Well, unfortunately, because of the pay that is that, that athletic trainers get, or in this case, don't really get, they're not paid particularly well, the market, i.e. the students, really aren't there. They're not really interested in getting a master's degree for, for not much pay because the pay is, is, is quite low. And so nationally, that's causing a huge problem. So what do we do? How do we fix that? And it, it is something that needs to be addressed. But right now I see nationally a lot of treading water and all every program thinks they're going to get the same 10% of the students. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but they're not really necessarily doing a lot to get those students. So that that's the kind of the contrary or the converse uh, uh, example uh, that's still playing out. And it, it's interesting. I want to jump back to something you said is what is your brand or, or you said, who are we? And and that, that is something I, I really struggle with as to what, with all these changes and more specifically changes that I know are coming and can't necessarily see, I'm not a futurist in that regard, um, but I, I know where we came from in many ways and, and that and what you're talking about with the role of the PhD student, the investment in the future is this mentor learner model, which is, is, is an, an embraced or the core and the fabric of the, the is of higher education. So, and, and what goes alongside those things, of course, the PhD programs, which you talked about, but also the, the tenure track professor who this is the, the high research, you know, the, the research is a, a significant part of uh, someone's job duties and, and their role at the university. And, 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 you know, back in the day, it's interesting. I remember earlier in my higher ed career in the early 2000s and such, I heard people say, well, tenure is going away. Tenure is going away. I'm thinking, I don't think it is. And <laughs> and and I was, I was right and wrong at the same time. I was right in the sense that they're just not going to get rid of the tenure system. No, they didn't. What they did is they created other systems alongside it and started hiring in those positions. So uh, whether they're you know, a group two, as they call them, so non-tenure track educator types or clinical types that have a lot higher teaching load, they can be, you know, promoted, but they can't be tenured. And suddenly where you used to see 80, 90% of your faculty were tenure track and had a couple just sort of hired instructors. Now it's like maybe half, you know? And so in that regard, tenure has attenuated in, and in your estimation, is it an endangered species? as it were? Uh, I I entered the academy in 1990, and uh, there was talk 30 years ago about this. The the, the, the trend was back in 1990 that uh, universities were were hiring fewer tenure-track faculty and hiring more instructional faculty. I, I think it might depend on the university. My observation is, just anecdotally, it, 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 I don't know the numbers on this. I've not looked them up. I do believe that, that tenure track positions are on the decline. And here again, I think it comes... So you think there might be a balancing then, an ultimate balance? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think there's there's more of a yeah more of a balance ratio there, but there again, I think it comes down to what the university, how the university wants to define itself and 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 what its brand is. Um, well, for example, you, you know, you in CSD, I mean, we are a professional program. Uh, speech, language, pathology, audiology, and there are two ways to go about filling a faculty. One, you can bring in uh, tenure-track faculty um, and some instructional-level uh, faculty, but we have to be really careful about what what the ratio is there because, as as you know, and you know, CSD listeners would know, you know, we we have national accreditation requirements that we have to fulfill, that we have to meet. Uh, you know, the core courses have to be taught primarily by PhD level faculty. And if, if, if that balance between tenure track and instructional faculty gets out of whack and you're heavier on the instructional faculty, you're going to be in trouble in terms of accreditation. That's one issue, but but it, of a recruitment issue, I think that's important is, and some programs are better than others about doing this, and it depends on how they, I guess, uh, build themselves. But you know, if if you're not maybe an R one institution, maybe an R two institution, I, I I think that I think it's a it's a drawing card for prospective students, uh, master's students, SLP, AUD students, to, that if, if your program can, can advertise, say, hey, look, you know, we're, we're not like UC <laughs> or, you know, some Big Ten school where, you know, maybe a lot of their the, the graduate courses are being taught by PhD students. Our core faculty are teaching all of our courses. I mean, I think that's a point of pride. That that could be a point of uniqueness. That could be a an important draw for for our uh, professional programs. But to do that, the university has to to realize that that is a drawing card, and that they should provide the necessary resources, i.e., <laughs> money to hire tenure track faculty, those who can merge science research and clinical practice. So again, it comes down to your philosophy and who you are and what you want to be and who you want to attract. So in that regard, especially if we're looking at the um, tenure track as a fundamental researcher, the university and you having PhD programs that are fundamentally research degrees and that the notion that universities, higher education are the places and a large, certainly not the only, but a, a large source of the development of human knowledge, right? Yes. And, and, and that becomes, so you start to look at that and you say, okay, this short-term thinking you were talking about, that, that temptation to just hit on those things that don't have huge ROI financially on a qu quarterly, semi-annually or, or annual basis. Mm-hmm. What does that say about that role of the university and society? What does that do to our progress in humanity in developing the knowledge, like literally knowledge? 
Wow, that's a big pick. Uh, that's a big, big picture question, an important question, and um, <clears throat> something that is is um, yeah, it's a reflection of that 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 intersection of culture, uh, economics, um, philosophy of education. I, I don't know what the what the ultimate answer is. Yeah, you're gonna have to break here. I'm, 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 I need to think about that one. Well, you and me both. I mean, that is the ultimate question, and I, and that's where, where when I ponder this, the when I say the issue, it's really multi-level, multi-dimensional, interactive uh, issue of, of of not just funding but enrollment and where we're investing and what the identity and the role that universities serve. Then you have, not to mention the generational cultures of who, what are these kiddos, you know, nascent adults looking for. And, and, you know, part of me wants to reject that and say, well, this is something they want, but that, you know, things, how they want it and how they, how they visualize it is a little different or how they might want to consume education is a little different. But how do we move in that direction without losing that edge? Because, you know, basic research especially is something that is so critical. I mean, it was a, I was watching a, a physicist talk about, um, you know, the, the Large Hadron Accelerator, you know, where they were looking for the Higgs field. Uh, not a physicist, so I'm, getting, I'm probably getting that wrong a little bit. And someone even asked, so why, why, invest, why, why should we invest in, you know, you said this thing costs $9 billion for this Higgs field that doesn't really do anything for anybody. Mm, yeah, and he yeah. goes, yeah. That's right. That's right. And it's important that we did it. it, but not because we can make a product out of it, but it's, it's our human knowledge. We want to figure it out. Oh, but by the way, it turns out that for every dollar you spend on, on this kind of research, it, it returns itself in like in $10 of technological innovation that no one had any anticipation for because it's basic research. We're not asking about applications, but they tend to come along with the package. And, but if you're not, not doing that, it's easy to forget that and not invest in that. Um, and I don't know where that would occur if not at the university. So that's my struggle as I think about it. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. Yeah, it, it, it is. <clears throat> and um, I, I, I would just like to think that universities would never lose the sense mm -hmm. that right. we are the Citadel of knowledge acquisition, epistemology, the study of knowledge. And that, that, that's, the, that's the essence of what the academy is. And you want to attract the best of the best to be able to, uh, um, you know, new discoveries, people uh, discovering new, new things. Um, um, it could be basic knowledge. It could be new applications. I, I think it. I think in part it starts there. It starts at the very top. Not for for leadership. Never to lose sight of the fact that the academy. What what the academy's essential function to society is. And that's knowledge acquisition, just new discoveries. And, and as you said, to your point, discoveries that we don't know what the implications are for, for several years. And, you know, I'll, I'll use the pandemic as, as, a, uh, as a loose analogy. I, 
I, I know many of my colleagues, and I've read this in some, um, you know, various, you know, uh, academy magazines and, um, and for myself and some of my colleagues, as I said, that this, this, this pandemic has shut down everybody's labs across the country, across the world. And science goes on. And how, how do we adapt to that? And it, it's kind of this, this um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Frank Zappa and the mother of invention. You're faced with a problem and you either adapt or you die. And so it, it's, I think there's this political um, adage, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And not that the pandemic is, is a good crisis, but it forces us to think in new ways, to think in, in new ways to about how do we want to, uh, at least from a methodological point of view, how, how do we want to run our, our research labs? How do we want to, to um, uh, conduct our clinical services? Are there uh, new clinical service delivery models that, that we want to try out? Do we, do we, do we want to jump on the telehealth uh, telehealth uh, practice bandwagon, um, or do it in a smart way. Um, so I, th so I think that the difficult times are are an inflection point for you to take stock and where you are, um, where where you want, where you you know you want to go, and how do you want to get there now, given these new circumstances. Um, I. So I think the pandemic has has helped us in some respects, um, in, in terms of being very clever and creative in some of the things we're doing. Just speaking for myself, I have moved completely from face to face to a virtual platform, and it's actually improved some of the work that we're doing, and it can it can enhance our subject recruitment and su and subject retention without any sacrifice uh, or minimal sacrifice of fidelity of our data. I think that's an enhancement. Uh, and we nobody would have thought of that until we were faced with this pandemic. Wow, that's really cool to hear. That's And it is interesting because it has changed so much even in our environment here. Um, we've done things so fast and the amount of support, it's interesting, you know, support comes available saying, well, we're doing stuff online now, so we need X, Y, Z to do best practice. And it's like, there's been a lot of stuff that's been online. Why weren't we doing that before? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh -huh. And so a lot of these things are, I, I hope, here to stay. I mean, the, the alignment of uh, collaborative tools will go alongside of the learning management systems has just been such a boon to to the quality mm -hmm. of education that's being delivered online and and the connection you can establish with students that that were a lot was a lot harder to do. I don't think it's necessarily ideal yet uh, in terms of that maintaining connection with students, but it is so much better and so much improved. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, with any 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 shift 
in thinking, any shift in methodology, um, <clears throat> it's gonna it's gonna take a little bit of time to work out the the kinks. There are gonna be some hiccups along the way, but if you're smart about it, thoughtful, you can make it work, and um, and it and it can actually enhance the things that you're doing, and. And in our case, I think presents the opportunity to do things that we've never done that will enhance, at least from a clinical training perspective. It will it may well enhance our clinical training. Yeah, and and from that perspective, it's, it's interesting that you refer to these professional organizations that accredit our the, our the professional clinical programs. It's this pandemic has moved them out of the mud in some ways and allowing things that probably should have been allowed already to occur. And guess what? It's yeah. working amazingly and students are learning so much more, especially the telehealth um, the technologies because yeah. yeah. in, in the speech pathology and, and audiology worlds, that was considered an advanced practice uh, skill. And, and it turns out, no, it's, it's something that we need now and it's going to be every day and everyone should be doing it. And it's not going to go away. We have, we have patients that no. don't want to not do it. You know, they, they don't want to have to come in anymore. They're like, this is great. I'm getting everything I need. I don't need to leave my house. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm physically impaired from a stroke maybe. And, you know, yeah, exactly. And I don't have to just really struggle. I can just click on. It, it, it can expand and uh, extend our practice. Um, we can see more patients, a wider variety of patients. The technology is here. You, yeah, you, you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. I'm sorry, people. Right, right. And 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 I, I I'm well. I don't even want to go down that road about professional organizations. Um, and, and they're oftentimes being very intransigent in terms of, of accommodating um, difficult situations. Right, right. Intransigent, very good good description of that. And I sat in on some of those calls and uh, the chats were blowing up of, you know, and, and they just sort of kind of have their, their, their line and then they yes. say it and it just, um, yes. and we just sort of shrug and, there have been uh, letters to some of these organizations written by chairs across. I think you were a signatory on one of them. Uh, I, <laughs> it was, and it helped, and it made a difference. Um, we got, we actually got feedback saying they're looking at it in the. the yeah, but your your letter. It was a great letter. Our national organization was uh, a bit intransigent, but they they at least acknowledged some of these programs, states, letters about concern. Right, right. All right. Well, boy, we've covered a lot of ground. And um, is there anything, uh, any other topics that you wanted to chime in on? Um, you know, if, for example, do you have any advice for a student who may be in a late undergrad or master's program, maybe considering a PhD program, um, any advice for them looking at the future of the academy? Uh, good question. <clears throat> I, as you probably know, I, I, I have struggled for a few years um, with this idea of potentially overpopulating or bringing in too many doc students 
and they, uh, w- with the uncertainty that they will land uh, an academic job. Um, and of course, like any field, there, there, there are always cycles. And um, you know, looking at the looking at the the demographics of the field and the retirement rate, uh, yeah, the field looks like um, we we do need we do need an infusion of 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 young you know new young faculty members over the next uh, ten years at least 10, 10, 15 years or so as the baby boomers begin to retire. Um, I would say to them, go for it. You know, look, if you're interested in research, that's your passion, then, then by all means, look for a program uh, and don't chase the program, chase the person, <laughs> chase the mentor and um, uh, look for look to apply uh, to work with that person. Um, I, I, I think it probably is a good time right now to, to get your PhD because there are faculty openings. The topics are timely, they're important, and I think, you're, again, your perspective coming from the research background is really important because it is a, it is the fabric of the university. You are what the university was meant to be or designed to be. And I don't think we should really think about losing that as the university has to adapt to new conditions. And so that, that you, you summed up some really interesting challenges. One is uh, one probably the most salient is, is not just who we are deciding who we are, but knowing that that's what the university is, at least many, many universities are is how to protect that while adapting those changes, how to prioritize the long-term thinking elements in, in the temptation of, in the face of tempting to um, cut those programs that are so important, that are easy to cut and won't affect you today, but will ultimately harm the university down the road. That's exactly right. That, that, that is perfectly stated. So I think I think that is a really important point. I'm so that's why I'm so glad to have you on, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to be with us. I think you've contributed hugely to uh, to your world, your research space. I know at the conventions that you present, especially the the convention of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, where you go to most talks, and there may be you know twenty, thirty, sometimes fifty people. Yours is standing room only, out the door, down the hall. Um, which, which really is, in, in a lot of ways, the ultimate testament of of your, of the of the respect people have for your work. So it's, you're not just speaking as someone who spends time in a lab at a university, but someone who has done it, done it consistently, done it well, and done it a lot, and have graduated a lot of students, have gotten the hardest grants there are to get, and so you speak from that place of authority, and uh, that's why I think your points are not just salient, but they're coming from a a place, a person who lived it and succeeded in that environment and knows what that needs to, knows what it takes to succeed in that environment. So for that, I, I thank you very much, Jim, for being on the show. Well, I thank you very much uh, back at you. This has been very enjoyable and uh, you, you raised some really good points and 
I wish you all the best in your podcast. I, I love the idea. You're the perfect person to do it. Well, I really appreciate your words, Jim. Thank you again for being on the show. And with for someone who has had such a long and illustrious research career as yours in the academic setting, your words should not be taken lightly by the listeners. So I strongly recommend you take a strong consideration reflection on Jim's words. Well, once again, thank you for joining us on Reckoning Higher Ed. My name's Jeff D. Giovanni. I really appreciate you listening. Feel free to drop me a line at jeff at reckoninghighered.com pose some questions and such, and we will form those together into a Q&A session at some point in time. Please don't forget to subscribe, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you, and until next time.